Well, I was a teenager when the sitcom Seinfeld first aired on television, and that show provided me with years of memorable one-liners and lots of context for jokes with my friends. And for a, for a show that uh, is supposed to be about nothing, it sure has a lot of staying power. In fact, I can never resist it, even when I'm flipping through the channels and see it now. One of the most memorable things I remember about the show as a kid was the vast selection of cereals that Jerry had in his apartment in New York City. I don't know exactly how many boxes, but he had at least between eight and ten at all times. And, you know, I, I think there was like a couple episodes where you see him eating mini wheats or, or, or Cheerios or something like that. But I always wanted to know what was on those boxes. And I always imagined that it was sugar cereals because my mom would never let us eat sugar cereal. She only bought healthy cereal without any added sugar. Uh, the line is always, when you're on your own, you can buy whatever kind of cereal you want, but not in my house. So from the minute I watched Seinfeld as a kid, I knew that when I was free of my parents' cereal regime, I would be free to buy all the Captain Crunch, Fruit Loops, and Lucky Charms my heart desired. And sure enough, in newfound freedom of young adulthood, I bought six different kinds of forbidden cereal and two gallons of milk, and I went on a cereal bender. To this day, I cannot even come near smelling Crunch Berries. No vomit should be that bright a pink. <laughs> That's just disgusting. Besides learning not to binge eat sugar cereal, I learned two other important lessons about my freedom to choose whatever I want. First, it was an expensive habit. There are a thousand other things I would have rather have spent my money on when I was in a 20-something uh, than empty calories. In fact, one of those things was sitting up here, but I think she's working with children's ministry right now. <laughs> Even in freedom we have to make a choice, and we have to decide between things, and that means choosing one thing we inherently choose not to do or to buy something else. Second, once the novelty wore off, I found I didn't really like sugary cereal as much as I thought I would. It was kind of an empty pleasure, but I realized I was more attracted to my license to eat the cereal than I was to the actual product. I wanted something I couldn't have, and that was more alluring to me than the actual stuff. Now, I open with this kind of lighthearted example to break the ice for what is about to come. Together, we've been exploring Paul's letter to his church in Corinth, and he's been responding to some reports he's heard about from certain people. Some are written reports, and some are verbal reports from Chloe and her people. And he's heard about the church in Corinth and how they have been using their freedom to engage in some evil things. They've been behaving in ways that are inconsistent with um, the life of one who's been rescued and forgiven and given a new start in Christ. So this evening we're going to read Paul's response to another issue that he's heard about, specifically certain people using their freedom to rationalize activities that destroy themselves and destroy fellowship in the church. I invite you to stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body. But the immoral person, or sexually immoral person, sins against their own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Lord, we know that we're supposed to glorify you in our lives. Scripture says that's why we're created, to be image bearers of the living God. The same scripture tells us that that's why you put on flesh and died for us and rose from the grave. To heal us and to make us whole. Help us to see, Lord, what Paul is saying and how that can encourage us and lead us on to more wholeness and to fuller life. We need your help with that because we confess once again that this is a difficult word. Have mercy on us. Amen. May be seated. It sure seems like we're talking about sex a lot in church, doesn't it? <laughs> we, we are. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, I'm committed to expository preaching. As we work through books of the Bible, we just kind of have to take the, these topics as they come. And lately, especially in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, it talks a lot about sex and different, different issues that are going on. Um, Sex is one of the most primal and powerful drives known to human beings, which is why it so easily can turn from something good and wonderful to something wonderfully corrupt or dangerous. It's important to point out that Paul doesn't really dwell with sex that much in his other letters. He mentions it in in a lot of letters because it's important, just like he mentions a lot of things in, in the Bible. But this letter to the Corinthians is different. He references sex in 1 Corinthians so frequently because of the reports that he's heard about this particular church. So far, just look at what we've heard of um, in 1 Corinthians, just up to chapter 6. A guy who is openly sleeping with his stepmother while his father uh, is still alive. Uh, We've seen a list of ten vices that prevent one from entering the kingdom of God, four of which have to do with sex three of which have to do with overindulgence of food and drink, which in this Rome, in the Roman and and Corinthian world were tied together. So what I want to do this evening is try and paint a picture of the cultural scene in first uh, century Corinth as it applies to this text. And by doing so, I think we're going to see why participating in some of the culturally accepted activities wasn't consistent with following Jesus. And that should lead us then to some implications about why this might matter for you and me. All right, so let's begin with this opening phrase. All things are lawful for me. Paul writes this in his letter. Scholars consistently agree that the phrase, all things are lawful for me, was an accepted saying that reflected the Corinthian view on life. Let's dig a little bit deeper, though, and find out where this saying may have come from and how it was used. 
The work of the great philosopher Plato created a kind of intellectual bedrock for how the pagan culture understood its world and understood the universe. It was believed that the soul was inherently immortal, which, by the way, is not the biblical view of the soul, which is why John's gospel is all about you are born with a certain kind of life, and that's called bios life. It's the kind of life that animals have, too. You're born. You live. Sometimes you get diseases. Everybody ages. You die. That's bios life. Everybody's got that. John's gospel is all about, but I've got good news for you. This guy Jesus came, and he offers you through faith in him Zoe life, or eternal life. Maybe that was news for you about the immortality of the soul inherently being a human thing, but we can talk afterwards. That's not what this sermon's about, okay? But that's what Plato taught, and by the way, a lot of Platonic thinking worked its way into the early church, which is where we get some of those ideas. Anyway, Platonic thinking was then popularized by decades of lesser minds and household religions, and it taught that while the soul was immortal, the body was a prison. And it's not so hard to understand why they would think that, because life in the ancient world was brutal, and it was short. Full of pain and suffering. A broken bone, a simple thing that, uh, you know, Tim's got a cast on right now, but he told me in a few weeks he's getting that baby off, a little therapy, he'll be back to mountain biking in no time, right? Okay, but a broken bone in the ancient world, you mess up your ankle or your leg, you could be crippled the rest of your life. People just did not know how to help Uh, heal each other very well in those days. Uh, A simple cut almost always meant infection, and for many people it could turn gangrenous, you would lose limbs. Uh, People used to be identified when they, um, for example, if you bought property, today we would go to Chicago Title, and they would sign all these legal papers, and you use your signature, and sometimes you would get a fingerprint, or people know your face. I mean, there's all kinds of records. You've got a social security number, and all of these things. In the ancient world, uh, let's say, um, Jeff Milson comes in, he was, he's going to buy this plot of land, and what they would do is look at his body. He wouldn't even have to probably take his clothes off, the, the scar that's on him, or the limb that he was missing, or the third finger that was gone. You write all of these marks because so many people had scars or missing pieces or just stuff that was so obvious. That's how you would identify people. Isn't that crazy? So it's no wonder that without the revelation of Scripture to guide people, uh, people thought that the body was a horrible invention, ironically put on people as a joke from the gods. I mean, that's really what people thought thanks to Platonic thinking. Now, by the time that Paul is writing, there was kind of a new line of thinking that we have recorded in many ancient texts, most notably by a guy named Philo. In these writings, we see the common pagan view that the soul was immortal, so they kept thinking like that, but we see a different view of the body. The body began to be seen not so much as a prison, but as a beautiful, albeit temporary, home for the soul to dwell in, in its passage to the eternal realm. The senses, which for many ancient philosophers were always held as suspect, you can't trust the senses, were now exalted as friends of the body. The pursuit of excellence, the ancient Greek erete, which was high on virtue and self-discipline, began to be less about character formation and more uh, about, as Bruce Winter puts it, the amoral art of success. 
When I say amoral, that means no moral compass. Ends justifies the means. Success is the highest order of the day. Listen to the rhetoric that Philo records about this time period. I'm quoting here. Are not eyes and ears and the band of other senses bodyguards and courtiers of the soul? Okay, so the senses are the servants of the soul, he's saying. Must we not then value these allies and friends equally, equally with ourselves? So he's making this case that we've got to pamper the senses because they're the friends of the soul, don't you see? Did nature create pleasures and enjoyments and delights that meet us all the way through life? Did, did nature create these things for the dead or for the unborn? No, no, of course not. Nature gave us these things to indulge. And what is it to induce us to forego the acquisition of wealth and fame and honors and offices and every else of that sort, everything else of that sort, things which secure for us a life not merely of safety but of happiness? This is where we first see in ancient writing this pursuit of happiness as a philosophical axiom that's being taught. This is nothing short of a famous teacher presenting a case for self-indulgence, the pursuit of personal gain at any cost, for gluttony and pleasure-seeking, all without guilt. Wouldn't this person that Philo is quoting be an excellent advertiser in the United States? Because they're basically describing the American dream. The only difference is, is that in America, we believe everyone should indulge themselves as much as, we, as they want. That's what our ads tell us. You deserve X, Y, and Z. We've got low financing on this vacation or this new car or this product. And we get all of these conflicting messages on the same magazine issue uh, to women. You can say uh, 15 different cake recipes that are decadent. And on this side of the same page, how to lose weight. And they're both owned by the same people. Decadence as a God. See, in America, we're taught that everyone should indulge all the time. But in Corinth, and listen, to it, this is vital to understanding this. In Corinth, this mentality of all things are lawful for me was only an acceptable phrase in the upper 5% of the elite of the elite. For those in the lower classes, which is the vast majority of Corinth, such behavior was completely unacceptable. Now, what behavior am I talking about? Specifically, the famous Roman upper-class feast. Remember, Corinth is in Greece, but it's a Roman colony in uh, the mid-50s AD when Paul is writing. Ancient cookbooks reveal decadent extravagance of these meals that they would serve that make the food channel, which I've heard is like uh, porn for foodies or whatever, it makes the food channel look like going to McDonald's. I mean, these recipes, they talk, they pair every single thing with the palates of the mouth, with the right wine, entering in aphrodisiacs into the dessert ones because of what follows after dinner. People ate to excess, that was expected, and then they drank even more. And for large events, like, like a banquet that might happen at the Isthmian Games in Corinth, which is the second only to the Olympic Games, um, wagon loads of foreign women escorts would be brought to dinner for companions during the meal, but mostly for the dessert of flesh. 
So one might argue in the church, and it appears that some of these upper crust Christians in Corinth were arguing, hey, it's cultural. We've always done this. When in Rome, right? That's what we might say, when in Rome. Actually, the saying was not when in Rome. It was, all things are lawful for me. That is, as an elite member of the Roman colony of Corinth, I have special privileges that an average person just doesn't have. It's my right. This is my right as an elite citizen, and to prove it, the famous sophist teachers tell me so. Who's to deny nature? The gods made me an elite person, and the gods gave me the senses to indulge, and the gods gave us slaves to suffer on our behalf. That's actually how people thought. And if that doesn't convince you, look to nature, which, by the way, was seen as a goddess herself. Nature makes it clear, just like food is for the belly, so my body is for sex. And after all, why would nature make such a wonderful gift if not to indulge it in that pleasure whenever I want? Now, before we get into Paul's response, just consider for a moment how this would have gone down in the church. After all, Paul has already said, hey, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Church, and I'll just reiterate this for our own sake, we do not judge outsiders, okay? So drop our judgmental attitudes. We can, we're, we're to, if we're to have any kind of prophetic voice into the culture, into the community, it's got to be from a stance of humility. But we do not judge the outsiders. But then Paul says, but we do have a responsibility to maintain order in the church. So he's talking about people in the church doing these things, going to these banquets, expressing themselves sexually in this way. Okay, So some of these elite members of the church thought that their social status outside the church allowed them freedom to partake in these pagan customs of gluttony and drunkenness and sex outside of marriage. Now, think about this just from a social perspective. What's 5% of this congregation in this room right now? Let's just say it's this line right here with Frank to, uh, oh, we'll include you, Chad. You look pretty elite. And Jeff, too. You can be elite, too. So, so this row here with Charlotte and Jenny and and Jeff, that's what, maybe 5% of this group. Okay, now what if this group right here were, had elite status in society outside the church on the other six days, they're, they're doing special things, and you know, you, so now we've all come to worship the living God together, and we're reading the same scriptures about sexual fidelity, we're reading the same scriptures about humility, we're reading the same scriptures about holiness and purity, and that we're the temple of God and all this stuff, and you guys know, because maybe... Maybe Joe over here is actually a household slave for Jenny. He works in her house. He was serving drinks the other night when she was doing some stuff, you know what I mean? So, and, and then you've got to come together and worship with each other, where this, this, this class structure is upside down. And you know that in some of these folks, of course, they get into leadership in the church because they have, you know, they're worldly, they've got leadership experience outside the church, so some of them are the elders. How can you respect them? If they're indulging in that lifestyle, this is exactly the kind of stuff Paul is talking about in the church. You notice that whenever Paul is addressing these sin issues uh, so far in this letter, he's assuming we all get that it's wrong. He's not really talking so much about the sin. He's talking about the church's response to the sin. He hates how it causes division in the church. You've got a minority of special people who are indulging in open sin and probably in leadership in the congregation. What a screwed up situation. It's kind of like how in our society certain people get special treatment. You know, I had a friend who's a blue-collar union laborer, and he was having an alcohol problem, 
and got a DUI and uh, comes in and his boss, you know, there's, there's certain protocols, but basically uh, they did the right protocols as far as getting him rehab, but basically they found a way just to can him. You know, no second chance, nothing. But then we, it, the same thing, um, you look at a movie star and it's a, almost a joke. Hey, how many times has such and such been to Betty Ford Clinic? And for some of these movie stars that are in and out, in and out, I'm not going to name any names, but it almost makes their characters, that the kind of characters that they get in film, it almost makes them more successful because they can play these kind of edgy people. And some, some actors, I wonder if they're even acting at all when they play some of those roles. So for the elite in our culture, they get it exalted. They get all these free passes. And for other people, consider uh, uh, you're an African-American guy riding down, driving down the road. You get pulled over. Uh, you s- the cop smells something on your breath. You don't even blow a breathalyzer. You get beat up on the side of the road and taken to jail. Same thing happens to a professional athlete. Their lawyers are there in a minute. They're covering everything up. That person gets to play. There's appeals that drag out until at least till the season's over. Right? There's, there's a double standard for the elite in our culture. And that's what was going on in the church. That type of unfairness, especially if you are the one on the receiving end, it destroys society. I mean, come on. We've seen, we've seen the riots almost every other week. We're hearing racism, this unfairness, is destroying our nation. Think of what it does in the church. There's no place for it. Uh, it certainly tears the fabric of our community when we, some flaunt special privileges that others don't have. So, what Paul does is address this issue by using their slogan against them. All things are permitted for me. And thus far, they're going, yeah, we totally agree with that statement. Right on, Paul. But then he adds, but not all things are profitable. That was not part of the statement that the Corinthians would say. Sure, there are things that are legal. Since when does that automatically mean that they're good? Followers of Jesus don't make secular laws their moral, comp- their moral compass. Where the law and the Lord come into conflict, we're called to call- follow the Lord. Paul continues, All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything The key to this whole thing are the first and last verses, verses 12 and verses 20. All things are lawful, perhaps, but don't make anything your master. Why? Verse 20, because you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You gotta love it when Paul uses good grammar and good structure in his arguments, right? Look at those first and last verses. They're bookends for this whole thing. Paul goes right to the heart of their argument for nature. For the Corinthian elite, hey, the stomach is for food. The food is for the stomach. If that is true, goes their line of thinking. The sex is for the body. That means the body must be for sex. Who are we to deny our natural impulses? Sounds like some popular psychologists I've heard on Oprah. But Paul says, you're confused. Yeah, the food is for the belly. They go together. But at the end of the age, the body as we know it is going to be changed. In this age, we have to eat. Our bellies must digest food just to survive. But in the new age, in the new creation, things are going to be different. Now, I sure hope we get to eat in the new age. I mean, Jesus, when he's resurrected, busts through that wall, and they're all freaked out. They think he's a ghost. That's Samara's favorite Bible story right now. 
Dada, do the ghost story. It's like, what kind of father am I? But it's the one where Thomas is hiding, and he thinks Jesus is a ghost, and then Peter, and he says to Peter, I'm hungry, and Peter gives Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, a fish, and Jesus eats it. And basically, the, you know, can a ghost do that? Ha-ha, wink, wink. No, a ghost cannot do that. He's alive in the flesh. But that doesn't mean Jesus has to eat. Like, I wonder, just wonder in the new, new creation, if we get to, like, taste the pleasures of incredible food, but don't have to worry about the belt line. Anyway, I don't know. <clears throat> but that's not the point. Sex is different than food altogether. See, you can eat without being sinful. It's gluttony that's the sin, right? Or you can drink, you can have a glass of wine or a beer without it being a sin, but it's drunkenness, a life of drunkenness that is the sin. But you can't just like, oh, I'm just going to have a little bit of illicit sex outside of marriage. It, it, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Like, you, you can't just have a little bit and have it not be a sin like you can with food or with drink or these other things. It, those other things are, are, are elements that you bring into the body, but the mystery of sex is that the two become one flesh in the biblical view. And you know, just heard a, a new TED Talk on this the other day, but it's old research. The, the, the chemicals that are released when we are a, a union in sexual relationship, it's a, it's a bonding union and it's it's yes you can you can describe it chemically and i think psychologically but also i want to say spiritually there's something going on that's what paul seems to be inferring here that there's a transfer there's a a connection that is different than the other things it doesn't just affect your body it affects your whole being it gets to the core of who you are the common pagan view as i said earlier was that the body is just an agent of pleasure for the soul the body dies, but the soul lives on, then who cares what we do with the body, right? If that's your argument. But Paul is saying, for those in Christ, what we do with our bodies actually does matter. Because the habits, and you, if you're an exercise person, you know, uh, I wish I were better at that, but it, you know that you can build up resistance and strength train and, car- and your habits of what you do with your body, the stuff that you eat, the way you exercise, pays off. It actually shapes you. Right? And scriptures talk about, and, and the um, spiritual formation people talk about all the time how the body can be a tool to spiritual formation as well. For example, when you choose not to eat for a while, to fast, it can help you, draw you into a place of prayer. And you abstain. When you use posture and worship, kneeling, standing, hands raised, it helps you to, your, your body, your training, your body is an asset, can be a tool to help you grow closer to Christ. The habits we form with our bodies inform our character. They will affect us forever because in Christ we'll be resurrected in bodies that live forever. And because of that reality, Paul warns them, flee from sexual immorality. Don't mess around with it. He's probably, as an Old Testament scholar, he's probably thinking of Joseph, right? When he was serving Potiphar and Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph, kept coming on to him. And then finally one day she gets him cornered in this like room. There's no witnesses around and he just has to run. And she grabs onto his robe, and he runs out, and she claims that he has um, tried, to, tried to rape her. By what he's thinking. I, I, this is unscripted, and I said this last week, and I think every time I talk about sex, uh, I've been saying it, but I, I want to make it clear. Sexual sin is not like the worst thing in the world. Okay? Um, most of us have failed sexually in our lives. Some of us has had things, um, people taken advantage of us sexually. 
And it makes me wonder, okay, well, what does all this mean for me then? I've been violated, or I've violated someone, or I've crossed the line. There is nothing that God cannot redeem through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that he cannot make new in your soul. So don't hear this as like, oh, I screwed up once. This is it. That is not what this is about. What this is saying is, listen, let's say, let's say right now is your starting point. Jesus has washed you clean right now as you're listening to this. Go forward in newness of life. Don't make this part of your habit because your body is going to be resurrected. And while he can wash away those stains and those scars, hey, let's not make new ones because it damages other people at the same time. Amen? The big issue for Paul is not the specific sin. Once again, Paul's trying to teach the Corinthians, that the gospel is more than not sinning. The gospel is not about not sinning. Last week, uh, the, we, we said that the gospel does not call us to a vocation of no. Like, really, Christians, that's all you've got? Don't do a bunch of stuff? That would be the lamest thing ever. That is not what the Bible says either. The gospel calls us actually to an affirmative yes. The gospel is Jesus redeeming us from slavery to sin, and that's why Paul is so adamant, do not become slaves to something else again. Jesus died, and through faith in him, you are now free from the uh, slavery of freedom. Don't get, like, hooked up with another master again. The gospel calls us to new union with Jesus, to intimacy that was lost in the garden, uh, but it's not only restored in Jesus. You'll notice that Revelation and those books that talk about the future, it's not a going back to Eden. It's better than Eden. It's better than Eden. It's a new, deeper relationship in Christ. Just, Just ponder this. You're invited into the Trinitarian relationship. The early church fathers used the word perichoresis to describe the Trinity. Peri, around. Choresis, dance. Choreography, that's where that comes from. This, this beautiful relational dance that the Trinity does. And through Christ, you and I are invited into that. Intimate. Read John 17, man. Read that prayer that Jesus has for us is that we would be one with that triune God just as the Father is one with the Son is one with the Spirit. That's a beautiful thing. We are invi- this is the affirmative yes of the gospel. We're invited into this holy, intimate relationship, into the common life of Jesus. An even more vivid image is the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've already heard this in, in 1 Corinthians, that the church, plural, is the temple of the Spirit. Now Paul gets down another level and says, you, singular, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Each follower of Jesus is a temple that houses the holy. How then can we who have the Holy Spirit in us, the very Spirit of God, go and have illicit sexual relationships? That's Paul's point. Just to use a crass example, like you're you're about ready to click on the illicit website. You probably wouldn't do that if your mom was looking over your shoulder, right? You've got God living inside you. Like, can you just say, you don't just say, oh, The Holy Spirit's going to the bathroom real quick. I'm free for a few minutes. You know, we house the Spirit of God in us as followers of Jesus. How awkward. 
In the ancient world, people took their holy spaces very seriously. Paul one time uh, took Timothy into the temple, didn't even take him into the Holy of Holy sites, uh, but he was accused of doing so, and, and Timothy, of course, was a Gentile. The Jews pulled him out and wanted to stone him to death for desecrating the temple. It wasn't just a Jewish thing, though. We've, I've told you all these stories about how bad it was in Corinth how immoral and all this stuff. Well, there's one place where there's still some decency, and that was on one of the many thousand pagan shrines in Corinth. You would not dare desecrate one of those sites. You would be executed. And in fact, when conquering armies came in, what they would often do is desecrate the site just to rub other people's faces in it, and then change that site to be the temple of their god. So this is a powerful image that Paul is using to the Corinthians you're a temple of God. They would totally get that. You don't mess around with temples. You don't desecrate temples. And what he's saying is, if you're a temple of God, how is it then that you're joining yourself to a prostitute or having illicit sexual relationships? The gospel is not a negative. It is a vocation of reflecting holiness, the goodness, the loveliness, the creativity, the truth, and the glory of God. Usually, when I, I'll put myself in this, so I'm going to say we, because I'm going to guess that for most of you it's the same. Usually, when we read passages like this, we tend to focus on what it says we can't do, or how it convicts us of what we're doing wrong. And I'll chalk it up to narcissism. I think about myself a lot. And I read the scripture, I think about how it affects me. I think about, oh, I'm doing pretty good in that. Or, oh, I feel so guilty about that. We often read Bible passages through a lens of personal reward or personal consequences. But what if Paul were in part referring to the fact that what we do in our body has eternal consequences not just for us, but for other people? What of those prostitutes? That always bugged me. Paul's talking to the Christians going to these prostitutes. Well, what about them? These women that are taken from other countries in a wagon and brought to these parties where the elite are doing these things. What about them? Whose family were they ripped away from? And by engaging in that activity, they're supporting human trafficking even in first century AD. What of their soul? If there's no market for that stuff, Maybe their souls aren't damaged like that. And what of the men and women in the porn industry we support every time we follow that link like an animal led to the slaughter? There would be no market for that stuff. We didn't provide it. And what if even that willing sexual partner who gives full consent but is not our spouse in Christian marriage, single or married, doesn't matter. What of the wake of destruction that we leave behind when we sin because that that's real and you know what as christians we could say well i'm glad jesus forgives me what if you're doing that stuff with someone who's not a christian where do they turn what about their soul i think these things have huge implications and they're not that's not becoming of the character of an image bearer of god that's paul's point i often think that this church in corinth could have been struggling with embezzlement and we have to hold you know right now we're talking about sex all the time because that's their issue uh, but i mean if it was embezzlement if it did the same thing it's not the particular sin that's the issue the particular issue is 
when we don't act like who we really are in Christ. In the end, this is so much more uh, than sex. It's about a God who put on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. It's about the Son of God dying on our behalf to rescue us from slavery, sin, and death. And it's about the ludicrous notion that after being set free, we might sell ourselves back to slavery to our appetites, whatever those appetites are. And I think what this really comes down to is not whether we eat too much or it's our sexual stuff or it's our um, financial fears or lying or gossip. It's not about all the list of stuff. It's really about our lust for license. When it comes down to it, we do not like the fact that we're not Lord. We love freedom. We're American. Right? The ones that left those red coats behind because we want to do it our way. You guys, it's just part of our, it's part of our backdrop for good, for ill, probably a mixture. It's very difficult when the gospel is about rescue, but it's about rescue by putting your faith in one who calls himself Lord and King of the universe. And that means you and I ain't King of the universe, even our own little one. The truth is, you and I, I've said this over and over again, every preacher does, we're not really free. We're not really our masters. We're always serving another master, whether it's our insecurity, trying to make it for someone else, or it's our passions, our lust, or our hunger, or our search for comfort. We're always serving someone else, mastered by something. And Paul's argument is that we are to be mastered, we're designed to be mastered, but we're designed to be mastered by the master. Otherwise known as, just in case that sounds like a bad thing, otherwise known as the good shepherd. He alone is the one who leads us to green pastures and quiet waters and the kingdom of heaven. So I encourage us to once again lay down our delusion of self-mastery and embrace the master who leads us to, to freedom. Father, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for the things that uh, we don't even know we're doing. And forgive us, Lord, for our open rebellion. Lord, we confess, and you already know it's true, that it is difficult to trust someone else, even though the job we're doing isn't great either. Help us, Holy Spirit. Would you please open uh, our hard hearts and our closed minds to receive afresh and in a deeper measure the lordship of Jesus and help us to see and to know the goodness of Jesus and the sense of, of, of rescue and the sense of, of freedom from, uh, from the things that lead us to death and the sense of goodness and wholeness of serving a master who is so good and so generous and so gentle. I continue to come to you with these requests week after week because they're miraculous requests. We trust that you're the God who answers prayers like that. Bless you, Lord. Amen.